as I sometimes do, I want to draw your attention to something that we just read. Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is worthy of your extended and slow reading and meditation. Whether this afternoon or over the course of the next week. It's worthy because it's not a psalm that um, it's, it's a psalm that seems to not fit in our understanding often of the gospel. It's a psalm that recounts uh, the steadfast forgetfulness of God's people. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. You remember the story. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Can you imagine being there? My word! But they soon forgot what he had done. What kind of people forgets that kind of mighty work done in their very presence before their very eyes? God's people. God's people forget the mighty works of God. It's hard work to remember that the invisible God reigns visibly and powerfully in our world, in our lives, isn't it? Today, as we begin our Advent season, we are continuing our series in Isaiah. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 62, but I want to draw your attention to the connection and how in the Lord's goodness and providence, He has brought us to this point of considering this latter part of Isaiah through these weeks of Advent. The story of God's glory begins in a garden that has rivers running through it. That's not just a detail that uh, helps it look more realistic to us, as though it's just a detail that the... um, author wanted to throw in there to beautify it. But that river that runs through that Garden of Eden is a river that actually runs throughout the story of Scripture, the story of God's glory. We cross that river again in Psalm 1 as the stream along which the flourishing tree of righteousness is planted. We nearly drown in the river in Ezekiel's description of it as it flows from the temple and floods the nations. And we come to its banks once again, as John describes in Revelation, that river flowing through the new heavens and the new earth with that great tree of righteousness now fully and fully fruitful and flourishing, spanning both banks. The river in view is the river of God's glory. It is the river of God's righteousness. It is the river of God's love. It is the river of God's peace. 
that we have been considering throughout the fall. Last week, we saw the floodgates of that river thrown open by the arrival of the servant by whose work the floodwaters are released. And during Advent, we will gather at the headwaters of that great river, we will stand along its banks, and we will celebrate the abounding life of God's peace that flows from a small manger in a small stable all the way through to the very ends of the earth. So as we come on this first Sunday of Advent to, our, to this point in our service, let us read together Psalm 62. Psalm 61 is the arrival of the servant and the celebration of his work. Listen, as the, as the prophet continues reflecting on the servant and his work. Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. <clears throat> Go through. Go through the gates, prepare the way of the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for us, his people, today in this place at this time. So let us go and ask that by his spirit he would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Father, we do come and we do pray uh, that 
because we come as your children, in Jesus' name, you would grant us your spirit. You would grant us a calm once again. Say to the storms that rage in mind and heart, peace be still, that our eyes might be lifted to behold the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, the glory of his work, and we may be changed. So to that end, Father, we pray that you would bless this, the preaching of your word, protect us from error and feast us upon your glory in Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Excuse me. That time of year. One of my favorite. Um, Olympic events is uh, the track and field. It's fun in the Summer Olympics to watch the track and field. There's a lot of drama, as you know, that, uh, that plays out uh, on the track. In fact, in 2008, if any of you remember, in the women's 4 by 100 meter, you remember that? Um, the American team, the U.S. team, uh, came around, and in the last leg, they fumbled and they dropped the baton. And so they lost their chance. And so four years later, uh, there was a lot of pressure on them. Can they do it? Think about that for just a few moments. Think about the four by 400 meter relay the intensity of it. You watch as four players run their course, uh, four runners run their course, and it is neck and neck, and you see the jostling and the elbowing, sometimes even the tripping. But then, somewhere around the end of the second, beginning of the third, there is a move to win, a move to get position. And so the third member of your team pulls out in front. And it is such a definitive move that victory is secure. And so we watch and we cheer and we look at the anchor man, that fourth man who will receive the baton. And he is there and he is warming up and he is all excited and he is watching his player come around and he's in position. And the player comes around and the anchor man starts running and the player passes the baton and it is a perfect pass. And the fourth man grabs the baton and then he stops. Isn't this how it goes? And he starts cheering. Because I got the baton. I got the baton. I won the race. And so he cheers. Such <coughs> an episode would leave us standing in shock. What is he doing? And he turns around and he says, why aren't you cheering for me? The victory is all but secured. Look at the lead we have. And it was a successful baton handoff. 
<coughs> we won. No. No, we say. You haven't won. And the race is not yet finished. You have to cross the finish line. The victory is all but secured. And so you run with confidence and with hope and with joy. But you run. Chapter 61. There's a sense in which chapter 61 shows that the race and the victory is secure. And so we can run that race with confidence. Having successfully received the baton of new life by the powerful accomplishments of the servant, many of us mistakenly conclude, like the runner in my story, that victory is assured, and therefore the race no longer needs to be won, run, leading us to premature celebration of our victory, and so not faithfully completing the race. It's a common image that runs through Scripture. You see, brothers and sisters, our labor, our call, our commission, our obligation to lives of holiness, to run well this race that is set before us, the victory of which is secured for us, is the crown of beauty. It is the royal diadem in God's hand. You see it there, verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall be, O people of Jerusalem, you shall be, O people of Zion, the visible crown the victor's crown in the hand of the servant whose race has secured our victory. It's visible, this crown, this royal diadem. The nations shall see, the kings shall see, they shall hear. What is it that the nations see? Well, we see it there in verse 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. But now you will be, my delight is in her. My land is, the land is married. For those of you who have, some of your versions may have footnotes there that identify forsaken, desolate, delight is in her and married as proper names. And so they sound in the Hebrew. And not only do they sound in the Hebrew, but they all end with the same sound. And so there's an alliteration there. So to, taken together, this describes the glory of God as it is refracted through his people. No more forsaken, no more desolate, but now my delight is in her, now I am married. 
He comes back to it again in verse 12. They shall be called the holy people. And what, and what is involved in this being called the holy people? Well, they are the redeemed people. They are the sought out people. They are the no longer forsaken people. You see, the glory of God in the accomplishments of his servant are put on display by the history, the story of these names. <coughs> Not the names abstracted from their history and abstracted from one another, but their names in how they came to be. It is the, the new condition that is inseparable from their respective stories. And so you see, you are no longer forsaken, but now you are the object of his delight. You are no longer desolate, but now you are brought into the household as his beloved spouse. You see, the glory is not merely that they are that they are the object of his delight and that they are married. <coughs> Excuse me. The wonder of it is that these were the ones who were forsaken and have now been brought in. These are the ones that were delight, that were desolate and are now made flourishing and secure. That's the glory. You see, the glory of God's righteousness, the crown of beauty, consists in this two parts. The no more but now quality of God's glory. You are no more forsaken, but now the object of delight. You are no more desolate, but now married. You are no more, you are no more Lost and abandoned, now you are called the redeemed. You are no longer lost and wandering, but now you are sought out and found. It is the no more and but now quality that goes together. The glory of God's righteousness is that these once were abandoned, but now are redeemed. They once were lost, but now are sought out. They once were orphaned, but now no longer are forsaken. Weren't you the abandoned one? Yes, that was me. But now God. Weren't you the addict? Yes, that was me. But now God. You see, that's the story that manifests God's glory to a watching world. The, to focus on the former condition in abstraction from or exclusion from the new condition, brothers and sisters, is a recipe for despair. That was the painful condition in which the sinners and tax collectors found themselves. But to focus on the new condition in abstraction from and exclusion from the old condition is presumptuous self-righteousness. That's the problem that the Pharisees and experts in the law found themselves struggling with. They go together. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. 
I once was his enemy, but now have been brought near as his beloved son. They go together, and it's in the holding them together that the glory and the power of God's love is made manifest. The life of holiness that the nations see is a life shaped by this twin self-awareness, a life of humble wonder and rejoicing. The nations would pass by, the Lord says in Deuteronomy, and they would see Israel, notorious, infamous Israel, the one who, remember Psalm 106, keeps forgetting these things. And they would see the delight of their God to dwell with them, to fellowship with them. And that would leave them scratching their head. What kind of God is this that delights to dwell with such a people? And in that question, you walk through the door to behold the glory of God's love. Now, that's an excruciating place for us to be because we find ourselves wanting to forget that, what it lies behind us, and laying hold only of that which is in front of us. But that's the strange thing, even in the verse that I just alluded to, comes right after Paul has trotted out his testimony. Our world wants us to forget. They want us to believe, hey, don't be so hard on yourself. You're a good guy. But brothers and sisters, the hope of the gospel and the life of the gospel is not that I'm a good guy or that you're a good guy or gal, as the case might be. But that our God is the God who delights to take really bad guys like me and make them new and then sit down and actually enjoy a meal with them. That is the gospel hope that the nations see. That is the righteousness that they see. That is the glory that the kings see. And so... We can labor in hope and in confidence. We can labor in hope because the Lord has promised and the Lord has called, verses 6 through 9. And so, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I set watchmen. All the day, all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem. Make it a praise in the earth for the Lord has sworn. The Lord has sworn. The one who by his mighty works at the Red Sea and throughout the wilderness and the history of Israel has shown himself to be faithful to what he says, that one has sworn. And so we stand, and so we watch, and so we remind, and so we recount, and so we labor with tireless, restless diligence. Even when, perhaps especially when, we find ourselves and one another losing sight of the one 
who swore and is faithful. And so we see in verse 8 that he has, he has sworn, he has sworn, Isaiah describes it this way, by his right hand, by his mighty arm, that's the prophetic and poetic way of describing the very visible, mighty works of the Lord that our culture teaches us to dismiss. Oh, it's just coincidence. But brothers and sisters, it is not coincidence. It is a mighty act of the living and loving and reigning king. It is the mighty act of his right hand. He himself is involved and his mighty arm. He himself is able. And he has shown himself so. The Lord has sworn, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God has sworn and sealed his word by visible mighty acts. And so we labor with diligence, taking no rest and giving him no rest, because he has sworn. But he hasn't just sworn. He has also fulfilled that which he swore. Verse 10. So... Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people. For the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter, your salvation comes, your reward is with you. And it sounds, to use the language from our opening illustration, it sounds as though the Lord is saying, hey, you've got the baton, start celebrating. But the reality is, what he is saying is, the victory is so secure that you can run in full and confident anticipation of celebrating your victory. What does that feel like? Verses 10 through 12 describe an assured future as though it is already accomplished. That is, what is for us the future is already all but accomplished because of the one who has sworn, because of the one who has been appointed and anointed to accomplish the work that was sworn. You see, this accomplished future means that while we have not, while we have not yet arrived there, we all are already known by the victory that is secured. Aren't you the ones that already have the victory? Yeah, that's us. Some of you may remember Sean White, that multi-gold medalist snowboarding Olympian, who's most famous, at least from my perspective. Olympic gold medal was the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. Some of you might remember that you run multiple runs, two or three runs, and then the total score is what determines the uh, gold medal. Well, his first run was so good that he secured the gold medal. There was no way that any of the other players could reach at that point, which meant that his second run was a gimme. He could just walk down the hill, but he didn't. And he turned in his best 
performance ever in that second run. Why? Because the victory was already secured. And now he could play and he could snowboard with abandon, which is exactly what he did, doing for the first time in public a trick that he, already, that he had always wanted to do. Look it up on YouTube. It is worth watching. How is that possible? Because he had no anxiety. He had no fear, no worry that he would lose the victory, that he would lose the crown. Do you see what's happened? The servant that we're introduced to in chapter 61 has come and has has performed in such a way that our gold medal, if you will, has already been secured. And so we can run the half pipe with abandon and joy because the victory is secured. But run the half pipe we must. You see, that we labor with hope and with confidence because of what the servant has done does not diminish the fact that we labor. It does not diminish the fact that it's hard work. It does not diminish the fact that we have to strive, that we still break a sweat. But it's not the sweat of anxiety. It's the sweat of hard work born of the fact that the victory is secured. To run does not diminish the fact that we are to labor, that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us, to strive to cross the finish line into our assured rest of a race well won, a battle well fought. You'd see, to say that because I am united to Christ, I have no more obligation and no more requirement to run well or to walk in obedience is like that runner in the opening illustration is to prematurely celebrate and so ultimately forfeit the victory that is ours. The victory that has been accomplished for us and granted to us and secured for us in Christ. This is why Paul says our labor is not in vain. Because you see, our labor is our participation, our real and visible in this world participation in the eternal glory of the triune God. Notice how chapter 62 opens. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 62, chapter uh, 62, verse 1, is Isaiah's version of Paul's 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to perfect completion. I will not keep silent. I will not be quiet. I will speak day after day after day, moment after moment after moment to every nation in every language until every tribe. And I will act. What is translated in the ESV as not quiet means, I will not be quiet means I will, I will not be still. It refers to activity. It doesn't refer to sound. It refers to activity. I will be about my work until I bring it to perfect completion. What is that perfect completion? Well, in the language of Isaiah, the perfect completion is the vision of Zion. Zion is not merely another name for Jerusalem, that, that um, actual city that sits now even in the Middle East in Israel. But Zion actually comes to function in the prophetic body of literature in the Old Testament as that great end-time glorious vision of God dwelling with His people with all the joy and none of the encumbrances of our sin. That is the vision of Zion. And so he says in verse 62, the servant says, and so until the vision of Zion is realized, I will always talk about it and I will always work for it. <coughs> until that day that her righteousness shines forth. The righteousness that we have described a city of people who once were dead have now been made alive and are gathered by the, by the Father's delight at His table. You see, the servant's assignment is nothing less than the comprehensive restoration and flourishing of the entire world, every cubic inch of it, and every human life in it. This comprehensive flourishing involves the perfect realization of the Zion ideal, the holy God delighting to have table fellowship with a notoriously unholy people, a gathering of those who once were sinners and tax collectors and have now been called his disciples, his friends, his children. The work to which we are called is the work of the servant who is stubbornly committed to establishing and securing and increasing the display of God's glory in every cubic inch of our lives, our relationships, and the world in which we live. Brothers and sisters, you understand, that's the backdrop for the New Testament command to repent, to confess, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the work to establish God's dwelling with us. Emmanuel. 
You see, brothers and sisters, our visible lives of holiness marked by the joyful humility of those who increasingly know the extent of the unholiness from which they were saved. That is, the lives of God's great love in Christ which visibly conform to and fulfill the law of God's love is the crown of beauty that the nations see and celebrate. It is the royal diadem in the hand of the Lord by which the world knows He reigns. He reigns in glory. He reigns in grace. He reigns in justice and mercy. And to the extent that we decide that we do not need for whatever reason to finish the race because the victory is secured, we rob God of that glory and rob ourselves of that prize. If we mistake the servant's victorious lap and successful grant of life's baton to us as the end of the race, we will not run well the race that is set before us, and certainly not with endurance. Because the servant himself will not keep silent. The servant himself will not be quiet until he has worked into every corner of our lives and our world the righteousness, the justice, the mercy, and the holiness of God's grace through the one who was born, who died, and rose again. And so, Father, we come and we confess that um, it is hard uh, to hold these things together, how desperately we need your spirit uh, to not only fix our eyes upon Jesus, but to feast us upon him, that we may have strength to recount and to remember without rest the wonders of your great work accomplished and being accomplished even today by your servant. Father, we pray that you would shape us and conform us by that and to that, that we may be to the praise of your glory. Amen.